The peace of Christ be with you. Let's slow down and give ourselves about three deep breaths to be drawn into the presence of the Spirit and held by this house of prayer. Friends, let us worship the living God. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. The one who has called you here longs for your wholeness. Let us enter this space with trusting hearts. The one who gathers us here trusts you to be a blessing. Let us use this time to renew, to grow, and to connect. Let us worship in spirit and in truth.
Welcome to you. All are invited to our Finley Hall after worship for coffee, tea, and snacks, and especially a chance to get to know each other just a little better. If you are visiting, I encourage you to seek out someone wearing a name tag that generally means that they've been here for a little while and would love to greet you and answer any questions. And that would be a subtle reminder to you all who have a name tag (laughs) to go ahead and wear it. Let's join together now in our community prayer. It's printed in your bulletin. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have blessed us with incredible freedom. Your grace outshines any shortcomings or failings we have. Your renewal overcomes any regrets we carry. Your forgiveness frees us from the bondage of sin. Help us to live into the promise of these realities. Teach us not to squander this freedom for selfish or destructive living, but rather to live in ways that celebrate the gift of life being given. Inspire us to use our freedoms to benefit others. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, know that the one who calls us to this place calls us to reconciliation through grace. Know that you are forgiven and walk in the new way that has been made known to you in God's love. Amen. Now at this time, I'd like to invite any of the children who are worshiping with us to come join Jeff here at the front.
So I encourage each of you after worship to find one of those kids and ask them to tell you how the story ends. So this is the time in worship when we share with each other our joys and our concerns. Uh, I want to start by sharing a joy, um, and that is our choir director, Ruth E. Wells, is celebrating her 10-year anniversary here at Westminster. So, joy... We are just so grateful for the many ways you share the gift of music with us. So thank you for your service to this church. So are there other joys and concerns that you would like to share with us? Yes, Denny. Michael, who had a procedure done in the hospital just very recently, and it's a joy that you're back with us today. So prayers for good health for you. Other joys or concerns? Carol. Carol. 
Mm. Prayers for Carol's cousin, who is very near death. for friend Barbara, who has recently been diagnosed with ALS. Valerie, did your hand up? Yeah. Absolutely. Continued prayers for Valerie's friend who was paralyzed in a bike accident, but even just yesterday could start getting some feeling in his hands. So continued healing prayers. Yes. I have a joy that my Aunt Georgia Ellen was here for her annual estate museum. Yes. <laughs> As always, it's good to have you with us. Welcome. Bruce. Prayers for Bruce's great niece battling brain tumor is going to have some radiation and experimental chemo. Yeah, Lynn. Look at that! <laughs> the wonders of modern technology. Lynn has a friend from Pakistan with her on her phone worshiping with us today. Barb. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Prayers for the family of Jenny Hoffman who died this week. Let's take a few moments of quiet, and then I'll lead us in the Lord's prayer. So let us pray together. Loving God, as Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us, we are bound together in an inescapable network of mutuality and tied to a single garment of destiny. Truly, not only on this important weekend, but every day, O oh God, you call us into your unending work of justice, peace, and love. Under the shadow of your wings, may we find rest and strength, renewal and hope. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. 
is perhaps one of my favorite anthems in our repertoire, and I neglected to put into the bulletin that the soprano solo at the opening is sung by Christina Swanson. <coughs>
The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not, and that you are not your own? For you were, brought, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your God in your body. This is holy wisdom, holy word. try to give the easy and comfortable passages to the lectors. (laughs) What's amazing is that the lectionary reading for today, the gospel reading that we didn't read, is can anything good come from Nazareth? In light of this week, that would be an interesting topic to preach about, but I'm sort of glad I chose a while ago to go in a different direction. If you're interested, I did write about it, and it's blog entries on the website in light about how we speak about other countries whose people have fled to come here or chosen to come here for other reasons, but for another day. Today I want to begin with a very simple question. Well, at least it seems simple. How do we decide what to do? I mean, in any decision, but particularly moral decisions, how do we decide? Research I did this past year for my project revealed to me that mainline Protestants turn to Scripture less frequently than do many of their Christian brothers and sisters, certainly their evangelical brothers and sisters. Now, perhaps that's because they read and value the Bible less. Perhaps it's because they simply read and value or understand the Bible differently and how it's applied to life. Who knows? But where do you turn then? Is it kind of a vague memory of what parents taught or maybe a good mentor along the way? Is it some kind of general secular sense of ethics? My guess is if I put before us the phrase, in every situation I try to do what is blank, most of us would fill in the blank with the word right. I try to do what is right. Seems logical. How do we know what's right? 
I mean, it's, a, it's an abstract concept, is it not? Right and wrong? And, and we who are of a faith might think we have really easy resources for that, but it's not so simple. I mean, Scripture is filled with sort of different ways of manifesting right and wrong. It shows up in different ways in different situations. The Bible is full of, of different perspectives, often in tension, actually almost always in tension, and sometimes in direct conflict. And so actually I think determining what's right and what's wrong is harder than we think and maybe not even as helpful as we think in having discussions. How well does it help us move conversations along? Think of the stereotypical controversial issues. Issues uh, such as abortion that we all frame, in, or not we all, but many frame in terms of right and wrong. Abortion is wrong. It is only right that a woman have complete control over her body. Now, I, uh, I assume, like many of you, have very strong feelings about that matter. But that's actually not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is how productive are our conversations with those with whom we disagree? Do they ever get anywhere? Or do they just go like this? Or like this against another? Another issue. Uh, LGBTQ questions. More resolved here than in many places, because in many places, those still evoke a real intractability. And the battleground is what? Over right and wrong. And who provides the arsenal for the battle, the battle, the weaponry? Often it's religion, right? Because that's our field, right and wrong. How helpful is that, I wonder? We've now decided in the state of California, uh, marijuana's okay, right? It's legal, we can have it. The question is, are we done with the conversation once we decided it was okay or good or right to allow? I think these are fair conversations to have. Now, I'm going to say two things that side by side you might find is strange. The first is the Bible is actually incredibly helpful in addressing these very issues and any number of other issues. And secondly... Talking about them in terms of right and wrong is not the most helpful way to do it. And moreover, I'm not convinced talking about them in terms of right and wrong is even the most faithful way of doing so. I actually think that that really gets in the way, perhaps. Look what Paul does in shifting the conversation. Well, before I say that, I know the moment I say Paul, for a number of people, the walls go right up, right? Because many people don't like Paul. It's okay to not like Paul. What I don't like is when people choose not to like Paul without choosing to understand him first. So let's clear up a few little things about him before we dismiss him. People will say, well, Paul is exclusive and I don't like him. When the reality is Paul's singular issue in ministry, that for which he gave his life, was to make the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, more and more inclusive. So if you think he's exclusive, you don't understand him. Second of all, people will say, well, Paul was a chauvinist. He's patriarchal, and social conservative. 
the morality codes, the household codes that Paul proposed throughout Scripture were in fact progressive and progressive along terms of gender and power in light of the household codes uh, that were common in the Roman Empire. So he was anything but what we have called him there. Finally, people will say, oh, well, Paul is just legalistic and rigid. Oh, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Paul was an expert in the law, but Paul was anything but inflexible and unthinking uh, and simply a rule follower. So dislike him if you want, but do the work to understand him first. Because here he gives us an incredible gift I wouldn't want any of us to miss. What he does is he pushes the Corinthians, and we'll talk about the issues in a moment, but he pushes the Corinthians to learn to ask better questions. And in doing so, he pushes us to ask more useful questions than is something right or is something wrong. He says, all things are lawful for me. When he says that in that passage you just heard, he is actually quoting the Corinthians back to them. That was a maxim of the Corinthian Christians, these uh, converts to following Jesus. They understood that their identity in Christ freed them from the law. Well, that's too simple. Freed them from a, a certain way of understanding the law. They were no longer under it in the same way. And Paul essentially is pointing out to them that their mistake was in stopping there. Because in essence, they have taken that freedom and interpreted it as license to do whatever they want. It's freedom from only, freedom from the 613 rules we're supposed to follow, but not freedom for anything. So therefore, anything goes. Paul doesn't negate this freedom of the Corinthians. He simply adds to it critically. He says, yes, all things are lawful now for you, but are all things beneficial? Are they useful? In doing so, he shifts the conversation about right and wrong, legal or illegal, lawful, unlawful, into what are the consequences for real people, flesh and blood people? How will this affect people. It's a markedly different standard. Paul wants to engage real people, not just philosophical ideas. I remember when I was a graduate student studying rhetoric, I was in a seminar, and I made some comment uh, about some issue, clearly memorable, by the way, I'm telling the story, and, but I must have referred to something as good or bad. And one of my colleagues uh, raised her hand and said, uh, basically called me out on it. Uh, now, we'll call her, for the purpose of this story, uh, Lucy Fur. Lucy Fur. And, um, no, just... Uh, <laughs> we'll call her Linda. Linda, single-handedly, over two years, gave me the strongest ocular muscles on the planet because of how many times I rolled my eyes when she spoke. Um, but she took me on and said, why, why should we, as a class, constantly talk about things in terms of good or bad, layering it with all this morality? Uh, why don't we talk instead about what's helpful or unhelpful, useful or not? Uh, I, of course, dismissed that ridiculous comment. 
until I got a, a couple years of perspective and some distance from who I'll call Linda now. Because looking back, as often as happens in my life, once I get a little separation from people who I rub against, I realize um, often, and certainly in Linda's case, they were right, or they were helpful. In fact, I later reflected that almost any time Linda said something that drove me um, mad, uh, she was right, or she had a point. Because she was pulling us away from these sort of abstract battle lines into real consequences for real people. What's helpful, for whom, what's hurtful, and for whom. It's a very different standard. Uh, Linda was an agnostic, probably maybe even an atheist, I don't know, but you could say in those moments she was channeling the Apostle Paul. Paul, who didn't make his living doing sophistry, speculating about all these ideas. Paul, whose most of his life was on the ground wrestling with really gritty realities. You heard about some of them a moment ago. So these are some of the issues Paul had to wrestle with, and often with the Corinthians. One, communion. People getting drunk and drinking all the wine, right? Because communion in that time period was not the seven-minute, uh, fifteen-second orchestrated little ritual with cutlets of bread and little sips of juice like it is in churches. Communion was were feasts, communion celebrations, big feasts, full meals, lots of celebration. But here's what happened on the ground in real life, because remember, religion is supposed to be about real life. If we haven't cleared that up, we should take a moment and do that. It comes from the word which means to knit together. And all religion was ever intended to do was knit together some practices and some teachings so that people could figure out how to navigate the world as individuals and as communities. Now, Paul recognized, and what we should recognize, is when we get stuck in these categories of right and wrong, we're more likely to be torn apart than knit together. Anyway, back to the story. People are hammered at communion because what happens is the wealthy folks who had um, homes to host the celebrations didn't have to work. They were wealthy. So they would start drinking early. They were pre-gaming Eucharist. <laughs> and by the time the, the poor working class got to the celebration, all the wine was gone and all the hosts were drunk. And Paul had to navigate these very gritty issues of how to make this work in a community, the inequality implied there, and so on and so forth. Paul talked about sex, right? We often get that wrong about how he talked about sex. You heard a lot of it here, but we often misunderstand it. He's talking about prostitutes here. And we've turned that into condemnation of, of sex workers and so forth. It's far more interesting than that. Uh, Temple prostitution was a, a, a common feature of um, the Roman imperial cult. That was part of how they worshipped. And they had prostitutes there and people could avail themselves of that. Paul understood that bodies really mattered. And for, and for Paul, what was the body? The body was the temple. And therefore, what you did with the body and what you did over against one another with the body and uh, really mattered. And so he wants to open up a conversation, again, not about ideas, but about how real flesh and blood is impacted by our behavior. 
using that imagery of the body, Paul had to figure out with people with different talents and different passions and different skill sets, how do we bring them together as a functioning body, a community? Really real issues. What's brilliant about Paul is how he shifts that conversation for his people and for our people. Because how many times do our conversations get stunted the moment we all line up on one side of right or wrong? Go back to those classic issues, if you will, and talk about something like abortion. Immediately, we're asked to line up on one side or the other. But you know what's interesting to me about that one is most of the people I've talked to in life, or many of the people, I should say, have more nuanced opinions about that issue. But in fact, they're afraid to voice them, even though they can articulate them, because they know they'll be maligned, often by their own side. So they stay quiet, and we get pushed ever apart, and we're told we have nothing that we share. It's interesting, this week I read somebody who said that their favorite definition of heresy was the inability to handle complexity. In an ironic twist, then religion becomes one of the major purveyors of heresy in the world because we don't tolerate complexity well. We line them up in right and wrong and we start taking names. And Paul doesn't stand for it. He pulls us back into considering the human, co- the human cost and the human toll of things. But abortion is actually a wonderful example. Paul pulls us to consider, by shifting the argument, he pulls us to consider the common ground we have. And wouldn't you know, when you think about it, there's more common ground on that issue than we're told right? Nobody I've ever met, and I've talked to people who are all across the spectrum on this, nobody I've ever met said they want more abortions in the world. Nobody I've ever met says they want women to have um, less options in their lives. Nobody wants more unwanted pregnancies that I've spoken with. Nobody wants um, more people in a position where they cannot care for a child. Nobody wants more children in places where they're not adequately cared for. Nobody wants a society that disregards the most vulnerable in their midst. Nobody wants people who are uh, victims of abuse or incest to have less choices in their life. nobody, Nobody states that directly. We actually have some real common values around that. We have different ways of achieving those things, but my sense of it is we never get to do the real creative and energizing and actually helpful work to Uh, achieve some progress on that common ground because we're too busy lining up over here and over here and assuming there's nothing in between that's shared. Wendell Berry uh, writes one of the most thoughtful pieces uh, I've read on abortion. Uh, In March of 2013, it appeared in the Christian Century, which is a fantastic publication, a periodical I, I recommend to you. And I won't have time to summarize it because it's appropriately long for such an issue. He handles complexity. And in it, he concludes two things that side by side I think you will find strange. Number one, he opposes abortion. 
except in an instant when, instance in which it would save the mother's life. And secondly, he thinks there should be absolutely no legal restrictions on it. Because he's not thinking about it the way we often think about it. He says, I can imagine a situation which I'm not only would be in favor of it, but I would help somebody get one. Because like Paul, he shifts the conversation from abstract uh, alignments and, and pious battles about right and wrong into real people. And he said, I can imagine a situation in which a woman needs one and I would help her get one. Now, I hesitate to even tell you what he thinks about it because that's actually not the point. You're capable of coming up with your own opinions about that. I lift, I lift him up because he models for us a way of thinking and a way of reasoning that shifts the conversation from principles to people. And that's, that's the magic shift. You think of sexual orientation uh, questions and people who've, think about the people in your life who've changed their mind on that issue or series of issues, or maybe how you changed your own mind if your mind ever changed on it. What did it? Was it um, a new biblical interpretation? I can give you those. Was it, yeah, really, really interesting. Was it a, a keen philosophical argument? Or was it knowing someone and loving someone and recognizing how laws or rules or different discriminatory practices would hurt real people in flesh and blood? Bodies matter, remember. That's what tends to shift things for people. That way of reasoning would resonate with the Apostle Paul. Ironically, who gets lifted up inappropriately as being anti-gay. That's another misunderstanding. Paul would resonate with that way of thinking. Jesus Christ would resonate with that way of thinking. And it's, in light of this weekend, Martin Luther King would resonate with that way of thinking because the great ones always measure action and behavior in light of real consequences for real people and real benefits for real people people. So now we've been granted, we've given ourselves this new freedom with marijuana. Go back to that one. What will we do with it? What will we do with it? Is the discussion done? Because my fear is that uh, we spend all of our energy arguing about whether it was right or wrong, and now that we've decided, we've no energy left to do the real work of talking about how to maximize its benefits and mitigate the cost. Do we have energy left for those conversations? Because those conversations matter. I mean, is there a conversation to be had about the benefits of, of, of cannabis for, for people? People maybe who have chronic pain or illness or uh, other medical issues? Sure, I think there's a conversation to be had there. We may not all agree, but a good conversation. Is there a conversation to be had about using a chemical for pleasure? I think there's a lot of conversation to be had there. I mean, we're in the heart of wine country, folks. If, if we don't think we do that here, we're kidding ourselves. Uh, I actually think we're long overdue for conversations like that around here. I mean, so one of you said to me the other week around this very issue, we are not a culture that does well in moderation. Having a glass here with a meal and there. I can't tell you 
how many times we've taken our young son to public places or to private parties with other children and parents where it's the middle of the day and parents are smoking dope right out in the open or three, four, five drinks in the middle of the day. What's that about? What's going on there? Shouldn't there be conversation to be had about that? Now, if you're wondering, I'll just let it out. I'm I was entirely in favor of legalization of marijuana. I mean, you don't have to agree with me, but I, in case you're wondering, let's just get it out in the room. I, I think the war on drugs was an abject failure. I think it was a huge waste of resources. I think it ruined people's lives. And I think consciously or unconsciously, it was a way to disenfranchise brown and black people. Because if you look, actually, this is fascinating reading, there was a conscious shift from referring to it as cannabis to referring to it as marijuana. Why? Because marijuana sounds Hispanic, and that's objectionable, right? So there's dirty stuff going on with that. Uh, I was in entirely in favor of legalizing it, but I'm entirely in favor, even more energetically, of continuing the conversation about now what? All these resources that we're going to get from taxing it, how many of those are going to go into treatment, education, training, life skills, whatever? Are we ready to have those difficult conversations about how to mitigate the costs, which are undeniable, the, the repercussions for mental health, well-documented but largely ignored? Uh, I mean, I don't care if you drink. Frankly, I don't care if you smoke pot, if you can handle it. But what about the people who can't handle it? And what about the people, and this concerns me the most, who think they can handle it but can't? What about the flesh and blood costs for them? and for their families, and for our communities. Are we ready to have those conversations? It's just coincidence that today we're going to have a sermon conversation in the library afterwards to just continue wrestling with some of these issues. Just happened to fall on today, but I think it's a good occasion. Because the question that Paul leaves us with is will we make the same mistake of the, that the Corinthians made in leaving it with, hey, it's lawful, and instead start to dig in and say, but is it beneficial? Or how can it be beneficial and less harmful? How as a people can we come together and engage on that and, and be a part of our community? The Christian vocation is not simply one of individual pietism. It's also of asking public questions, engaging in here and engaging out there because we share this world together. So today, if you can, Join in that conversation, but let it be a beginning and not an end. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have given us incredible freedom in Jesus Christ. You've given us the blessing of forgiveness and the incredible chance to start again. You've given us the blessing of eternal life. You've given many of us many material blessings. So give to us now the freedom, excuse me, the wisdom to see that freedom not only as freedom from rules, freedom from obligations, freedom from responsibilities, but also as freedom for, freedom for healthy relationships, freedom for the honoring of bodies, of our own bodies and the bodies of others, and freedom for serving God, that wonderful 
vocation of serving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.
You may be seated. This time I'd like to invite Michael Hatfield forward. He has a message for us from the nominating committee. And while he's making his way here, just to highlight a couple upcoming events. In two weeks, on the 28th, we'll be having our annual congregational meeting. You all are welcome to be there for that. It'll be at 11 a.m. following worship. And then also in about another month, on February 11th, we're having our next new member orientation. So if you're new to the church, if you're thinking about membership, if you'd like to learn more about the church, I invite you to track down either Rob or me. We have a whole folder of information for you, and we can get you signed up for that class. Michael. Thanks, Bethany. Well, usually I'm up here comfortably behind a guitar (laughs) with some great singers like Bethany and and others, and uh, so if I'm a little out of my element, um, forgive me, but um, I, uh, I'm a member of the nominating committee, and what we, what we do is look for uh, candidates for leadership positions in the church, and the good news is we've just about um, filled the open uh, positions, uh, nominations for two main roles, deacons, which I, I serve as a deacon, and um, elder, um, and I can I can certainly answer questions about about those. And the the bad news is we only have one slot left in each, and it's going to go like hotcakes. So if you guys are interested, uh, so uh, it's been a, a real um, that my participation has really shifted my um, membership. Here um, to a much more active role, and and mostly, I've just gotten to know a lot of you um, much better and much more deeply, and so um, it is a commitment. There are other roles that are um, I'll call kind of baby steps, like uh, they're very short term, but it gets you kind of more involved in the church um, leadership roles. Um, so, uh, if if any of you have an interest or you um, are aware of um, others who might have an interest, come and, you know, come and see me. I see Carol Kaufman out here. Carol is on the nominating committee. I think Nancy Gerard is here today. Um, and we'll um, you know, be making some decisions shortly. So thanks very much for your time and for listening. Thank you, Michael. So he mentioned that we're looking for one more elder and deacon, some of the more baby step roles to serve on next year's nominating committee. We also have a financial review committee. So if you're thinking about ways to be in church leadership, as Michael said, see him. Just one more thing. In March, we have a women's retreat coming up. Our planning committee has been hard at work. It's going to be a really neat time. We have registration forms out in the narthex if you're interested. Also, you can see Anita sitting over there or Judy sitting over there if you want more information about that. So now I invite you to stand as you are comfortable for your closing hymn, 684.
take the text of that closing hymn with you as you go. Not the hymnal, but the, the text of it, so that we might find the common ground in this time. And as we go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with us this day and be with us every day. Amen. Amen.